0: Well, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Genesis. First book of your Bible will be in the first chapter, the first page. We're preaching through the book of Genesis. And that's right, we said through the book of Genesis. That's 50 chapters if you haven't realized. It's going to take a while. We might be here until 2020 or so in the book of Genesis. But it doesn't feel good to be back in a, in a book. This is kind of our, our normal practice at, at Sojourn. We want to walk through books of the Bible because we feel like it, it gives us a better sense of the context and what God would, might be saying both to the original audience and then in turn to us. And so we, we work through books of the Bible uh, as our steady diet here at Sojourn. So Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1 here, the word of the Lord. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, would you pray together with me? Father, thank You for Your Word and for creating us. We pray that this time would be a time that would be an honor and a glory to Your name. Help us to listen well to Your Word, to submit ourselves humbly before it. And God, may You be honored and glorified as... We get equipped with Your Word. God, thanks for your, your Word. Thanks for giving it to us. May we follow it rightly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. His memory is blank. His bullet-ridden body was fished from the Mediterranean Sea. He has a microfilm chip in his hip that has a bank account number on it. And even his name is a mystery. He's marked for death, and he's racing for survival through a bizarre world. Who is Jason Bourne? The answer may kill him. Jason Bourne is on this wild and fun chase for his identity. Who he is, where he comes from. It goes through three, now four movies. Don't watch the other one, but there's four Jason Bourne movies. It will be fun and delightful for you to learn about the identity of Jason Bourne and where he comes from and who he is. Or you can read the books, equally as good. He's going after his origins to know who he is, to know where he comes from. All this stuff was a mystery to him, and yet there's this drive inside of him to, to find out. Who am I? Who Where do I come from? Why am I the way I am? And I think that there is in all of us that same kind of desire. Maybe we don't channel it quite the same way that Jason Bourne channels it. I try to, but it doesn't seem to come out that way often enough. But in all of us, there's this desire to know our identity, to know who we are, and to know where we come from. This, I think, is probably universal. So you have all sorts of creation accounts from all sorts of different backgrounds. The Babylonian kind of creation account starts like this there's these gods that are in conflict, that one is killed and, and splits the other one in two, and one becomes the heaven and the earth. And, and kind of humanity is made from the blood of, of these gods, or the, the one that was slain. There's this Germanic tradition where there's this separation between really cold place and a really hot place, and somehow ice gets poured into the fire and it turns into mist. And you think, oh, the mist is us. No, the mist becomes maidens and a giant. And this giant, somehow in, in this account is killed and he's used as the earth or we could switch to the Iroquois they have this tradition that there's this Indian chief who pushes a pregnant woman through a hole in the sky she lands on a tortoise and there are some birds swimming around they swoop down grab some mud deposit it on the the tortoise and that becomes the earth and she has offspring and that becomes humanity All right it's unique that, that all of us, we have great imagination, but what are we uh, putting that toward, or putting it toward what, where do we come from? What are our origin? What's, what, what is our background? Who are we and where do we come from? And this is what Genesis gives us: the origin of humanity, the origins of life. and indeed, it unites us all. This is all of our origin here in Genesis. But before we get to those origins, just kind of set up the book of Genesis. The origin of Genesis itself, I think, would be helpful for us to know. So it's good to think through, who, who's the author? Who wrote the book of Genesis? There's no official author that is given. But it's commonly accepted that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. I think that this is given from lots of different places, even in the Scripture. John, and Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 22, that, that Moses gave you circumcision... Now you you think of circumcision as a law given to the Jews. Often those are given in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. But this was given in in Genesis chapter 17. Long before we had kind of the the law given by Moses. So it's thought that, that Moses wrote that as well. We saw in Luke chapter 24, and we did that through our essential series, that Jesus speaks of Moses writing about him. Referring to the law, all the first five books of the Old Testament. Now Moses seems like a likely candidate because he would have been uniquely qualified. He is a Hebrew, and yet he grew up in this very learned place where he had all the resources in front of him to be able to learn. All these different origins from different stories, from different backgrounds, from different cultures. He had been trained in language and and know how to read and write. All these kind of things, Moses would have been uniquely qualified. But if we look at Moses' life, he also would have been uniquely motivated. He's with the people of God, trying to lead them somewhere, trying to do something with them. He's motivated to show them, here's who you are, here's who God is, Let's, let's move forward. But we're reminded even as we speak about the author that there's no author given and we should probably rightly you know, retain its anonymity. So that's to say that Moses really didn't want credit necessarily. Maybe we think that's who wrote it, but it's not ultimately the, the biggest deal when we come to this book. We know that all Scripture is God's breath. That is, it's, even if Moses was writing, he was writing as he's inspired by God Himself so that every word that is written out is the very words of God, not just the words of a man. But then we need to think about what what... What kind of book is Genesis? Now, this is, this is an interesting one, right? What are we getting when we're reading Genesis? This matters a lot because if I come to you and I say, once upon a time, you're going to expect something to follow that, that might have some dragons and a princess in distress and a, and a young hero that will come save the day. You're, you're expecting a fairy tale. That matters that I say, once upon a time, because you, you're going to now interpret what I say after that accordingly. The other day I got a text message from, from one of our pastors that said, I hate you guys. Now, if you just took that at face value... This is Jay, in case you're wondering, that was his laugh over there. <laughs> if you took that at face value, you think, like, we've got some serious problems in this church. There's hate between pastors. This is not ideal. But, given the context and, and the kind of intense sarcasm that was going back and forth in this, I understood that he doesn't really hate me. He actually means the opposite is true. I didn't take that as, oh my gosh, he hates me, we got big problems. So it matters what kind of book that we're looking at. So when Paul says that I'm writing this letter to the church, that that makes a difference as opposed to to another one. I I, I think this is illustrated well in the book of Luke. Because Luke sets out very clearly in the beginning why he is writing and why it matters. He says in Luke chapter 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us," Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me to have having followed all these things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus. So, so Paul or Luke is setting forward this idea that I'm going to write a historical account. It's going to be clear. It's going to be orderly. He's, he's giving that from the outset. So it matters that what we read from that, that we see it, is not just some legend or myth. We see it as, as what Luke intended it to be. And so what is Genesis? It matters that it doesn't start with once upon a time, that it starts the way it does, that it's written by who it is. So Genesis is what kind of a book? Well, we would say that Genesis is historical. That is to say that we believe the events in Genesis actually happened. We, we believe that these are real events. It's a historical account. But it's much, much more than just a historical account. We shouldn't turn to it as a history book. Um, it's, it's much, much more than that. It also teaches So it's not just trying to give us history and origins, it's also to teach us something. It's to teach the people of God something, how they're to live. It's going in there, but it doesn't just do that, right? It's not a geometry book that just gives you the formulas that you can work through. It's not just doing that, it's also doing more. It's an an artful book, it's an aesthetic book that has poetry, song, it it has more stuff in there. And all these things are given to us that we might know God. So so when we turn to Genesis, we see it as historical, but we also see it as much more. We see it as teaching us, as as leading us in in praise and worship. We see it as as an artful book. And then we also need to think about its original audience. Now, if there's good reason to think that Moses wrote the book of Genesis, then we have about a 120-year time span of when the book could have been written and, and for that original audience. So it seems likely... That Genesis was written after the the time when the people of God were at Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. So sometime after they received the Ten Commandments to the time they're going into the Promised Land when when Moses dies. Sometime in there. There's a lot of reasons for this. You think about Noah. He distinguishes in the story between clean and unclean animals. Well, that wasn't given until Leviticus. So where did that come from? Well, it seems like someone who who knew clean and unclean was was kind of filling that in and that the original audience would have understood what clean and unclean animals were, which wouldn't have been given until Leviticus was given at Sinai. And so it's it's thought that that the law, that the book of Genesis was given after Sinai as the people are kind of working their way to the promised land. So they're they're outside of Egypt. They've been delivered from Egypt and they're getting ready to go in this, this desert and wander around and... Moses, it seems, writes this book. And so Moses is writing primarily for a generation that is going to enter into the promised land. Now think about what they're getting ready to do. They're entering into a kind of a foreign territory with foreign gods that they've been warned about. And they might need to know and have some extra motivation of of who we are. Why we exist? What distinguishes us as a nation as opposed to these other nations? What distinguishes our God as opposed to all these other gods that we are going into the promised land with? And so the audience is is key for interpretation. So before we we bring all of our questions into Genesis from our current setting, we need to think about what the original audience would have thought. What would the intent been for them? Because, frankly, the, the audience wasn't Western, rich, educated culture. It was a weak, small nation working themselves into the promised land, trying to cling on to the promises of God, to trust Him and to believe Him as they go on outside of Egypt into the promised land. I I think that one commentator says it really well. If we wish to do justice to the inspired author of Genesis, we must begin by carefully listening to the text. In other words, we don't stand over the text ever, We let the text stand over us. It asks us the questions and we respond rightly, not the other way around. That's for any book of the Bible. He goes on to say, instead of imposing our modern questions on the text, we must hear this creation narrative as ancient Israel would have originally have heard it. And so before we bring all of our questions to the text, we need to let it bring something to us first. We let it stand over us. And so what we want to do when we, we work through Genesis is we're going to let it apply to them first. Let's let's look how he wanted to apply it to that generation, and then only from application on down to us. And we want to do this in any book. And so we think, what what would Israel have thought about that? How would they have heard these things originally? Now the author, that means that the author especially isn't confined to our standards. I mean, they weren't asking the same questions likely then that we're asking now. And the author is not... uh, Feels, doesn't feel like he has to answer everybody for all time all their questions that they that as he writes these things down he's writing an account that was sufficient for them then as he's carried along by the spirit of god and so the author doesn't intend to satisfy all of our questions and demands that we might have upon the text and so we shouldn't expect that from it as we turn to it but we still know that this is the living and active Word of God has much to say to us that is foundational, not just for Israel, but it's foundational for us as humans, giving us our origins, giving us the origins of evil, the family, nations, the promises of God, giving you all origins of all of those kind of things. So that means that this is a foundational book that's vital if we're going to study the rest of the Bible. I think about my kids, they like to play with blocks. And they like to stack as high as we can go. That's always the challenge. How high can we make a tower go? And so they, they put a lot of attention and energy into making it go high. But what the problem often is, is they don't put much attention into building the foundation well. And you know that no however, however much desire you have to build really tall, if you don't put some attention and detail and thought into the foundation, to the very bottom, that it's not going to go very high before it topples over. And this is what we need to think about when we're looking at Genesis as well. We can't neglect the foundation if we're going to build from there. We need to know where where we come from, who we are, who's our God, what's He like. We can't neglect this foundational book that kind of sets up the rest of the Bible. But more important than showing us just the origins of creation, the origins of evil, the origins of nations, the origins of the promises of God, I think most importantly, it shows us God. Every book of the Bible. That's what we want to be looking for is God. You see, Genesis isn't primarily a history book. Genesis isn't primarily a book that will teach us how to live. Genesis isn't primarily giving us this artful aesthetic language, although it does all those things and we should take all those things as they are. Genesis is primarily a book of theology. That is to say, Genesis shows us who God is. It shows us His character. It shows us what He's like. It's primarily a book showing us who our God is, what His world is, and what He expects from it. How to live in it. And so that means that it is worthy of our study. Even if you're skeptical, you don't believe in Christianity, you have all sorts of questions about Genesis, even if you're a skeptic here this morning, I would say that this is worth your study. Because if what we're saying is true... If our God is the one true God and if this is the origins, then at least it is worth checking into. It's worth looking into and checking out to seeing if this is true. I like this quote from J.I. Packer that kind of explains this. But he says, we're cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. And so I would say, even if you're a skeptic, that this is worth your study. And for believers, like this is, this is worth your study. Because we want to know the God whose world it is. And we want to live according to His good plan and design for it. Because that's the reality. is That this is our Father's world. And He designed it a certain way. And it functions. And we function best according to His design. So a book of theology in, in, in Genesis, it, it matters. Like one of my professors said that the theology is a war plan. As to say, it's not just some dusty subject that's on the shelf. Theology is a war plan. We have this one who's called the father of lies who seeks to steal and kill and destroy who prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour and the reality is is that we need a war plan in the middle of this fallen earth with fallen natures. Theology is our war plan and Genesis shows us whose world this is and who runs it. So my hope is that we would listen intently together so that we might know this God. So what does this opening passage of Genesis teach us about God? I would say simply put, if we were to say it in a short phrase, that that God is the sovereign creator. God's the sovereign creator. As we look at the text, we see a God who is there. Look in verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is like a a summary statement right from the beginning, but it has great depth. You may not have heard anything about the scripture, you may not know any of the books of the Bible, and you have likely heard that phrase. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is an amazing phrase with such great depth. It seems to be a summary that he's going to build on as we go on through the book of Genesis. But part of what Genesis is doing, even right from the outset, is that the author is showing Israel what distinguishes them and what distinguishes their God from other nations and other gods. And so part of the content that you're going to see in Genesis is content that is rivaling these other traditions, that is kind of debunking them or showing how they aren't true. This is one that's already debunked Here is It's atheism. The, the, the scripture already. That's ruled out. Because in the beginning there's God. He's there. Right from the very beginning. And we have this amazing truth handed down to us. That God simply is. God's eternal. He simply is there. We, we don't know how to explain that. We don't know how to comprehend it. Other than that God is there. He's this eternal God. He has no beginning. There is not a time when God was not He was always there in the beginning. This is affirmed throughout the Scripture. If you look in Psalm 90, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 102 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. They will pass away. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will remain. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. God is eternal. Isaiah chapter 44. God speaking, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. He is the only one who is eternal. And they pick this up again in Revelation. This is over and over again. We could go through the Scripture and say stuff like this, but he says, I'm the Alpha and I'm the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end, says the Lord God, who was... And who, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. God is the only one who is eternal. The only one with no beginning and no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He stands from age to age. Everything else, everyone else has a beginning. God alone stands eternal. We played a game the other night, some of you guys were there, and we, we talked about the average lifespan of a dog. I think it was like twelve years. I was shocked by that. That seems pretty short. I could be wrong. It doesn't really matter. Twelve years, let's just say that's the average lifespan of a dog. I grew up on a farm, the average lifespan much, much less than that, actually. So twelve years, in some sense, it's like that seems long, but then I thought about twelve years, my daughter is gonna be, you know, like that. We may not want to get a dog because it's gonna die when she's a child. It just seemed like so short. And yet we look to the Scripture and it says the same thing about humanity, right? You're, you are a mere breath, the Bible says. A mist that appears today and is gone. It's short. And yet we have a God that has no start and no end. Who has never had to have a birthday because He never had a birth. God was always eternal. It's amazing truth that would have been a great comfort to Israel, would it not? As they're trying to enter into the promised land seeking something to grab a hold of and trust in, they can grab onto a, a God who doesn't die. They don't have to worry that when they get there, that God's going to, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little tired now, so I can't really deliver you from your enemies. Or that He's going to die before they kind of finish their campaign to get the land that He had promised them. That God who led them out of Egypt is going to be the God that can lead them into the promised land because He is from everlasting to everlasting. He's not wavering in strength. And in our time, this is especially applicable as well, because everything around us seems like shifting sand. Everything seems just unsteady now. And yet we have a God who is very steady, who is eternal from the beginning to the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And this truth ought to be a comfort to us as well. Psalm 146 says it this way, Starting in verse 3, it says, Put put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day his plans perish, but blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. we, We are tempted to put our trust in a man. Even now, especially now, let's there's hope for the future. Let's find someone that can give us that hope. And this Bible says, like, be very careful because his breath is soon going to be gone. But God, He stands forever from age to age. Isaiah chapter 2 says it this way, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Trust in the Lord who is eternal. Everything and everyone that we can put our trust in is going to pass away. All their plans, all their dreams, all their hopes are going to go with them. God alone stands eternal. And hope is only rightly found in something that is going to last. And God is that place. He makes promises, and He's the only one that we can trust to fulfill those promises because we know that He is eternal, that He will stand. What a great comfort and hope to the people of God. In the midst of all their trials and struggles and suffering and good times on the earth, we know that our God lives. He's eternal. And the eternality of God reminds us that God is completely self sufficient. That He's independent. That is, that He doesn't need anything and that He's never needed anything. He's not contingent on anything. God doesn't create out of need. He doesn't create because He needed something. He needed humanity. He needed an earth. He doesn't do that. He is completely independent, not contingent upon anything. We are kind of the opposite. We need oxygen, we need sleep. We need food. Some of you woke up this morning and said, I need coffee. We need things. We're dependent. We're contingent. We're we're passing like a shadow. We're fleeting. God alone is independent. Israel would have known this very starkly as they're traveling through this desert. Where are we going to get water? Where are we going to get food? We have to have these things or we will die. And yet this independent God, what does He do? Manna from heaven, water from rocks. He's not contingent upon these things as if He needed them. So God's not only eternal, see that in verse 1? God is powerful. It says again in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this would take out, it seems, this idea of pantheism, that, that God and creation are one. God is creating. He is distinct from and distinguished from His creation. So the word that is used for create here is a word that is only used for God. Right? There's lots of words you could have used for create or make, but this specific one is a verb that is only ever used of God. God is only the subject of this particular verb. He alone then can do this creating. He alone is the sovereign creator, the powerful one who can do these things. So He creates the heavens and the earth, it says. And He does this out of nothing. He didn't need some sort of existing material. He just creates out of nothing. God does this. So the totality of the universes that are, are because God made them. God is the powerful, sovereign creator. And Isaiah chapter 40 says stuff like this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Think about that. He's just holding them in His hand. He's powerful. He's marked off the heavens with a span. He's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. He's weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Goes on to say in verse twenty two, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain? A curtain. Just a curtain. This is, this is not a problem for this powerful God to create all these things. Like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. And we know that he never gets weary. He's not tired. It's not as if he's running out of strength. He's creating universes, throwing them in motion, and they do as he says, responding to him rightly. Now think about our age. We live in this age of like great it seems well to us it seems great great technological advances. There's all sorts of technology that will blow our mind. We have all this combined strength of man working together, and we've never come close to creating the universe. We have some great lights, but we've never come close to a sun. I mean, think about that. The the united strength of humanity, not that we're all united on every front, but you you get the picture, we can't even come close. The power and might shown by God just in creation alone. Everything that we form, everything that we make, everything that we are a part of, we, we use existing material. We use things that are already there. They're not just coming out. God creates out of nothing. Nothing's in existence and He creates this. And in creation God is showing us that His power is unparalleled. We can't touch it. Can't even come close. I'm reminded of this fleet that the U.S. Navy had before. It's called the Great White Fleet. Is around during Teddy Roosevelt's age. They're kind of Switching from old wooden boats to these big, steel, massive warships. They take this great white fleet and they circumnavigate the globe. It was a display, it was a show of some good peace, but also like, watch out, we're really powerful now. And our navy will probably kill your navy. So they, they circumnavigate the globe to give everybody a look at the power of the United States at that time. And I think that this is what we're to do when we look at this Genesis account. That we need to take note here of the power of God. That we need to see what He's done and we need to adjust our lives accordingly. We need to see His power in creation. This amazing force that just spins things into motion. Out of nothing He does this. He is a powerful, sovereign God. And what a comfort. What a comfort to a weak nation that's surrounded by strength. What a comfort to a nation that had been enslaved to the power of the world in Egypt, be delivered by this God of power, and told to go into the promised land which they would take by His power. What a comfort to them to grab onto the promises of God, who is plenty powerful to handle their struggles and their issues. It's to be a comfort to us, this ever-changing world, where we have problems and struggles that seem to be persistent. That we have this eternal powerful God who is with us that God is so great that you don't have to be in control God is so great that we don't have to be in control of things We don't have to wrestle everything in our own hands. We can respond rightly and trust this God who is powerful, who is sovereign, who is the creator. We don't have to fear, we don't have to worry, we don't have to retreat because our God is powerful. He's so great that we can trust Him. He's so powerful that we can put all of our lives upon Him and know that He can sustain us how He chooses to sustain us. And so when we approach Genesis with all of our questions that are swirling about the origins of the earth and the origins of man and how this all fits together, we need to read it rightly because I think so often we take these things and we don't read it rightly. We, we come to Genesis with our frame of reference, our questions, our view. I'm not saying they're not important, but I'm saying let's think and take Genesis as on its own first before we get to those things. Because here's what's happening in Genesis. Even in the first verse, we're given this incredible view of who God is. That He is this powerful, eternal, creator God. So before we get to our questions, I think we need to get to where the other biblical authors get and respond rightly to the revelation of God. And how do we do that? We praise Him. Revelation of God always demands a response. And the response that is given in the scripture over and over again for creation alone is worship. We ought to ask this of every single text like, how can I worship God in this text? Like, what does this show me about God and how can I worship Him rightly? But the biblical authors do this. They look at this text, they look at creation, and they start worshiping God. If you look in Psalm 136, this is one example. I'm going to start in verse 1, put verse 3 on the screen. But give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him alone who does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who by understanding made the heavens, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who made the great light, so we could go on and on. The psalmist is just taking up these things of creation and praising God for them. You flip over a few pages to Psalm 148. Psalm 148 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. The creation's right response to God is to praise Him. To respond rightly to Him. If you look in Revelation chapter 4. Here these living creatures are around the throne. And it says that they cast their thrones before the throne saying, Worthy are You, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For You created all things. And by Your will they existed and were created. Didn't get to redemption there. They just said, you created all things and they exist by your will. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and praise. See, the biblical authors all agree with what to do with this creation accounts. To fall on our face and worship before the Lord. That's what they agree on. That we are to worship God because of this. And the question is, do we do this? Do we go to Genesis 1-1 and fall down in worship before the Lord? Do we worship God for His eternality? Something we can't even grasp with our finite minds. That He never had a beginning, that He never had an end. Do we say, God, You are great because You are eternal? Do we worship God for His power? That out of nothing He can put universes into existence? Do we worship God for His creation? That we look around us and we think, God made this. He alone can do this. Do we worship God for those things? If not, I think that it's clear that we we are failing to respond correctly to the Word of God. No matter our questions, we've already missed the point if we haven't worshipped God in what He's revealed to us about Himself. So my encouragement is to go outside and look around. And if you're younger, don't take your phone and don't put earplugs in. Go and listen to the things that are around you that God has created. You're going to hear some car noise and stuff like that find somebody maybe that lives a little further out. Listen. Birds, crickets, all these things. God made those things. Look at the stars and the sun. Like enjoy these things. Like wonder at your God and what he's created. You could work your whole life and you could bring everybody else in with you and try to work to create something half as good as that and you would never get there. God just out of nothing speaks these things into existence. So go out Look at the beauty and wonder and glory of God and worship Him. Worship Him for who He is and what He's done. Don't let the questions of all the origins hinder you from what Genesis would lead us to, and that is to worship. I'm not saying don't bring your questions or those that are important, but it's more important that we worship the God who created us. That we're questioning with brains that He created. That we are speaking out of breath and lungs that He put in us. So we need to think differently, I think, before we ask these questions. We need to praise God. God's the sovereign creator, worthy of our worship. He created the earth. So the big question then comes like, what is it like? What is it? What's it like? What's it all about? Well, it says in verse 2, flip back there in Genesis, the earth God created was without form and void. He says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In other words, it's kind of this empty, uninhabited place, but we see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Now it's debated what the Spirit of God is, because the word for Spirit is also the word for for wind. Something like wind. So is this the the wind of God that's hovering over the waters, or is this the the Spirit? As we would know, the the, the Holy Spirit, the third person or the person of the Trinity, the Spirit. Is that what is going on here? Well, I would say that my take is, in, in the context that we're seeing, that This spirit is the spirit of God, as in one of the persons of the Trinity. That even this this word that modifies it is God, the spirit of God. This word for God is, is Elohim. It's a plural form, plural word. That is always used of God. So it's, it's plural, but it's, it was plural because they were speaking of this majesty and greatness of God. As if they were saying, God is so great that we can't describe Him without going to another degree in our language. So they use this word that's plural, Elohim. To further exalt Him. To place further worth on His name. To hold His name highly. So it's not just like another God. This is Elohim. of a greater God. And so clearly... It, Israel, when they're reading these things, they would have thought, they knew, they were staunchly into there is one God. He is the Creator. There is only one. So polytheism is out. Many gods ruling, that's gone. There is one God. In the beginning, God. And His Spirit is is hovering over the waters. Over the face of the waters, it says. Another reason I think to take this as as not wind, but as the Spirit of God, is just how personal this image is. This image, it says He's hovering. He's hovering. It brings up this picture of of kind of a mother eagle hovering over the nest. And that's kind of the imagery that they would have thought of. There's other images like that in the scripture where you see this this mother eagle hovering over her kind of, in a sense, her creation, her nest. It's this personal image that the the author is bringing out, that God is is hovering like that. So God is not only eternal, He's not only powerful, He's not only the sovereign creator, He's also very personal. He's also in very close contact with His creation. And so we see both the imminence the of God, His greatness, His glory, He's high above, and yet His transcendence. That God comes down. Flip those maybe, but... That He is both above us and with us. That He is high and exalted, and yet close and personal. And indeed, I'd say that He is so personal that He speaks. If you look in verse 3, and God said, God said... Now these few words may not seem important as we read through them, but these, these words are, are vital to us. These words matter immensely for all of creation because God starts to communicate. He starts to speak to His creation and with it and to it. So He doesn't just create it and say, good luck. He doesn't just spin things in motion and say, I hope this all works out. There goes deism. No, he, he, he creates it and He speaks into it. He creates it and He speaks to it. He creates it and He's intimate and personal with it. And this speaking would have been, once again, as we speak to one another, this strong personal connection with creation itself. So in speaking, here's what God is doing. He's condescending. He's coming down to creation level in words and language that, that creation can understand and respond to. The infinite... The eternal, the all-powerful, is coming down to the finites, the people that can die, the mortal, so that we can understand. I think a good thought from this is is how we do with babies. We we have baby talk, so we we make words and noises and and sometimes strangely with, with things that they can respond to, that they can kind of understand that sound and what that sound might mean. So. We, we respond with, with baby talk often, with, with little kids. And, and this is kind of what God is doing. He, he's coming down to our level. He's speaking that we might understand Him. We also know, filling in from the New Testament, that this is God who speaks, speaks because He also is the Word. That John tells us that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God and that He got so close and personal with His creation that it said that the, the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us, that we might know Him fully and greatly. The God who is there is also the God who speaks, and He gives us a huge clue, I think, into why He created with these verses. Isn't that the big question? So God created, if we take that all at face value, why? Why? Which I think is a much better question than how. As we work through Genesis, I think the why question is a much bigger and better question than all the hows. I'm saying they're not important, but a why question is is much more important. So why? Why? On Genesis, this is a thing that I think that is addressed to us. But I just said that God doesn't need anything. So if we have a God who is eternal, who is not contingent upon anything, who doesn't need anything... Why create? Well, I think that the God who speaks is showing us in this personal connection with us and with creation, with this condescension, that God wants to be known. That God is communicating with His creation that He might be known. Is God lonely? No, He's, He's not lonely. Is God Wanting some attention? I don't think that that's necessarily it. Like, why would you speak? Why would you want to be known? Well, I think that there's even more hints here as we look at this passage. Hints from the Spirit who's hovering over the waters. Hints from the, the, the Word that, is, that is, we know is going to take on flesh and dwell among us. We, we understand that this God, if we fill it in from the rest of the Scriptures, is not just this solo God that has no community, that has no relationship whatsoever. From eternity past, God existed in three persons. That is, there is one God, He exists in three persons, and that is the eternal God. So God exists within His own community, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, having this shared love, shared joy, shared relationship, shared fellowship with one another from eternity past. And yet this God seems like then creates out of the greatness and the flow of that relationship to His creation. God is not lonely. He exists perfectly in perfect harmony with one another, with Himself. And out of that, He creates. He's not missing love. He's not needing to be served. He creates out of His greatness and out of His fullness. And I think that maybe I should let another scholar say it better than me. That the ultimate reason that God creates, this is Jonathan Edwards, paraphrased by his biographer. is not to remedy some lack in God. He's not needing something. Other gods need to be served. God doesn't need our service. Other gods need adoration. God doesn't need our adoration. He already had all the adoration and love that He ever would have needed. But what does He do? But to extend that perfect internal communication of the triune God's goodness and love. It is an extension of the glory of a perfectly good and loving being to communicate that love to other intelligent beings. You should probably read that. It's from this uh, essay that he wrote for the end for which God created the world. It's a great sermon title, but God created is the just God created not to get love, not to get service, not to get adoration. God created to share. God didn't create to get, He created to to give. He has all the love He needs. He has all the community and the people that He needs. And He creates to share that with intelligent beings that could respond to it rightly. God created not to get, but to share His greatness, His glory, His love, His joy, His relationship with His creation. That is us. So this is entirely unique to Christianity. Two verses in, and we've already split off from every other religion out there. That God is uniquely creating us to share with us who He is. There is no other God like this. And indeed, I think Genesis would say over and over again that this God is unparalleled, that there are many gods in the world, but there is only one God who stands supreme. And so what do we see from Genesis? it tells us a ton about His character, does it not? That there would be this God... Who would create not to be served, but to, to share His fullness, to share His greatness, to share His glory with His creations. This shows us that He's good. He's gracious, that He has stooped down to our level so that we might know Him and share in the greatness that, that He has had from eternity past. The eternal, sovereign, powerful Creator of the universe wants to share life with His creation. God is the sovereign one, is inviting us in His speaking, is inviting us in this personal touch to know Him. He's inviting us in to relationship with Him, to love with Him, to know Him, to find our joy in Him. There are tons of searches for origins of humanity, of life, of evil, of death, of who God is, of of how to live in this world. The desire is in all of us, but we will never be satisfied until we find this as truth. Because this is the God who made us. If we do not find our origins in Him, then we have not rightly found them. And we don't see this as an explanation of, a, a display of His goodness and His graciousness, then we haven't seen Him rightly. This is our God. And our origins are found in Him. And so, if our origin is in God, and He is reaching out personally to us and inviting us in, then our right response is to say, yes, please. May we know You and love You and live in Your world as You would see fit. In other words, we take the the revelation of God and we respond rightly to it. All creation, He speaks and it comes into motion. It obeys His Word. May we follow suit and respond rightly to our great God. Let's pray together. Father, words don't describe the greatness and glory that You have shown us even in two and a half verses. And I have surely failed to describe it well. Because you, Lord, are in some ways indescribable. But God, I ask that you would help us and that you would help make yourself known today. That for those who haven't rooted their identity and their origins in you would. And those who haven't trusted in you as a sovereign, powerful, good creator God would do so today. And God, for for the people who have trusted in You, may we receive great comfort and hope, knowing that You are eternal and powerful and the Creator, that You can sustain us and preserve us and lead us forward. And God, may we all respond rightly, even now as we sing in worship before Your great name. For Your creation alone, You are worthy of infinite worship, eternal worship. Help us to treasure... You as we sing even now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.